First Peter chapter five has at the as we come to the, really the conclusion of First Peter, uh, more likely next week, we have seen that the ultimate expression of our suffering that Peter has discussed throughout the book is one of the three major themes here. Um, is to understand the enemy, and we've looked at that, to engage him, and then with an expectation that while this is his domain, we are going to uh, not have one comfortable victory after another, but rather that we are going to have a struggle. And that struggle is going to encompass a certain amount of suffering. And as I've been had an extra week to really consider and study this, I've had... Uh, um, just more uh, confirmation that really the whole human experience uh, that's described in God's word consistently, whether it be on an individual level or on, with reference to humanity in its fullness, um, is surrounded around really what is being communicated in the verse of our study today, which is verse 10, and in, in conclusion, in, in understanding that cycle. And that cycle is that we begin in, in one condition. We then see a necessary humiliation that, um, whether it be because of our sin or disobedience, or whether it, be become, whether it is by the hands of others who are sinful and disobedient, that we see the humiliation of the individual or of mankind, and then we see either their willingness to humble themselves and endure that and give glory to God and receive his blessing, or that will conclude in their complete judgment. And those that do humble themselves before God, do endure, are glorified. They are blessed, they, more so than in the beginning, in their original condition, even with, with the humanity story itself, going to the Garden of Eden and say, well, what, wouldn't that be wonderful to be in a perfect environment called uh, the earth before sin, uh, to have all that you need around you, to have this evening fellowship with God on a daily basis, that you have uh, no sin and none of the guilt and weight of that, nor any of the injury or death from that, and... Uh, but yet we find that because of their sin, because of their rebellion, that they were cast out. Uh, and the question is, well, now do I serve the Lord or do I turn my back on him? We see within one generation a very great dichotomy among mankind, don't we? Those that are going to serve themselves and those that are going to serve God. And this is the story of Adam I'm sorry, Cain and Abel, the, the next generation. And, and this becomes the theme throughout the scripture, though that we're all going to be humiliated by sin and its punishment, but how do we respond? Are we going to become servants of God or servants of self, and hence slaves of sin? And we find that uh, while we look at that original condition, those that humble themselves before the Lord, by the time we get to and serve him faithfully, even in the midst of things not necessarily going their own way, and we have lots of examples of that in God's word. And we come to Revelation at the end of the book of the end of the human experience 
as we understand it in this age, we see a great glorification that those who have humbled themselves will be glorified. This is perfectly aligned with the experience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, save no sin. There's no sin in this, but he has chosen to humble himself, and that humiliation lasted uh, well over 30 years. In fact, I would contend that it's still going on to a degree, even though he is highly exalted, because he is still uh, the God-man. And so we find that Christ humbled himself, became a servant, and we see that humiliation, and we see his maltreatment by the world, but yet his persistent desire to obey and glorify the Father which necessitated his humiliation and his suffering. But because of his steadfastness and because of that, God glorified him, not only through the resurrection, but through the ascension. And then we find again in Revelation that that ascension entailed him being glorified and, and, and transforming heaven, where he is seated, the throne of authority. And so we find that that perfectly images really what the human experience is. And we should not expect anything different in the Christian walk. That we who began at this level having accepted Christ as our Savior and enjoying that forgiveness of sin, that justification and participating in the sanctification and already counted as glorified, that we should anticipate a very similar experience that this is the mechanism by which we come to glorification, is the testing of faith that engages us in a conflict that often humiliates us and, and should include suffering. And that that is the evidence of an enduring desire to please God with our lives, and God responds to that. And rather than cursing God for bringing such humiliation and suffering into our lives, we ought, like the disciples, to be rejoicing in the privilege that we are on the right path. We are on our way towards glorification. And every athlete, every soldier, every uh, <laughs> worker really understands the necessity of that, that if I'm going to build a building, the first thing I'm going to have to do, if I want it to endure, is to dig down. And there is no fun in doing the foundation. You work hard, you put it in, and when it's all done, you're just level with the floor, with the ground. You haven't really done much. It doesn't look like much. But you know that you have done a tremendous amount of the work down in the dirt, knowing that it will be elevated and that then there will come. But if I want what is built above to endure, I have to do the foundational work. If we want that glorification, we want that exaltation, we're going to have to dig down and do that foundational work. And that's really what engaging in this spiritual warfare and the humility humbling ourselves and enduring suffering and standing fast is really all about. It is a foundation of something to come. We're going to be looking a little bit at that, I hope, this morning. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. It took, I only got through one word last week, so I was, well, hopefully I will get to that, some of that message this morning. If not, that'll be next week. We'll talk about the glory to come. But, uh, and, and so this is really uh, picked up for us in verse 10, 
We looked at that last week, that yes, God has grace for us, all grace, the God of all grace, granting us something we don't really deserve. He has called us to his eternal glory. We're going to be studying that later today or next week, if I don't get through these last three words. Uh, after you have suffered a while. And that's our key phrase, that that is the human experience. That is Christ's experience that we have it on an individual level. We can look at people like Moses, like Joseph, like Job, um, like Dan, David, Daniel. You look at all of these and they have that same pattern, don't they? They're at this position. You think, well, that's a pretty nice place to be. And we can kind of become content in that to a degree. Um, but God wants so much more for us, and for us to get to this point is not this route, it is this route. It is not up, it's down. It's going into slavery. It's being drug away to Babylon. It's losing all of your children, your wealth, all of that. It's being chased out of the palace and sent off into the wilderness to become a shepherd. All of those things. And that's mirrored again in the New Testament. Paul, having come to know Christ as a Savior, having this wonderful experience on the road to Damascus, you say, well, now he's just on an upward trajectory from there on. No, he disappears for 12 years. We know nothing about it. What he was doing in Tarsus until Barnabas went and, and had to turn over a rock to find him there and to bring him to Antioch. And so in their experiences, you see this, this same pattern and so we should not expect anything differently. But what is it in, the, in this world, and, and that's what our focus has been on, once we have endured suffering for a while, and that can be decades, as we've seen by some of these examples, it can be uh, years, months, uh, very seldom do I see it being days and weeks, but on occasions that is the case in severe circumstances. Um, but we find that what is going to be waiting for us is to be the first word we saw there was perfected, and we saw that that is really talking about being rejoined together, made new, and the word I'm going to focus on is refitted. We are refitted for the task of serving the kingdom of God. Retooled, if you will. We then come to another word, and that word is established, and again, we have uh, and, and we look at these perfect, uh, establish, strengthen, and settle you as all being very similar. And we, and we tend to uh, struggle a little bit, I think, to distinguish them, especially between establish and settle you. Uh, and uh, these four words are, have a very distinction. And, and if you look them up on the surface, yes, they are very close and um, the four Greek words used here. But when you look at their secondary meanings and what they literally mean, what does the word literally mean, not how it is often used, um, we find the necessary information to really be able to develop what is being spoken of here. And it's interesting how many of them talk, and we have, we're going to use the RE before every one of these words because we are re- Fitted, as we said, the next one we're going to look at is to be established, and that really is again a rework. A, a and it's really not that you are going to plant you in the ground; that we're going to uh, uh, 
make you solid. That's what we would think of as an establishment, that we're immovable. But rather, it, is, it has behind it this word of direction. It's gonna, I'm going to redirect you. I'm going to point you. I'm going to put you down and point you in the right direction. And that's, that's what the Greek word literally talks about, is that I'm going to redirect you. That after aimlessly wandering around, I'm going to give you this pointed new direction. It's, it's a concept of a new outlook, more than a new outlook, a new purpose. That now I understand that. Now we might look at, uh, and I'm just going to pick one of the examples. I could pick any of them. Let's look at Moses, who, who certainly had a desire of his heart for the, for the, uh, to stand against the maltreatment of his people, Israel. We saw that as a prince there in Egypt and that he exercised that by committing an, an act of murder. And God says, well, that's not really going to be sufficient. That's not really the, the approach that's going to work. I have a much bigger plan. And that's going to require something of you. You're going to have to, again, go through this process of humiliation, of suffering, of being now a wanted criminal chased out of Egypt, uh, chased into the, the wilderness, um, and shepherding sheep for decades. And then comes the exaltation. Now, let's talk about the exaltation of Moses from this guy. Um, what does it immediately do? It gets his attention, right? What is it God used to get his attention? The burning bush. And he says, oh, that's interesting. I'll go over and look at that. And God says, now um, you've just entered holy land ground. Take off your shoes and enter into this worship. What is that called? Humil humble yourself. Right? He had to humble himself before God. The circumstances of life had humbled his position. But just because you're in a humbled position doesn't mean you have humbled yourself. And that's why the Bible calls, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, we know that there are two levels of humiliation. One is that where the world uh, has that effect on us, that we are humbled by the world, and that is not engaging your will. It is the circumstances of life around you that may come upon you where you, you know, are unwanted by society, you lose your job, you, all, all these things go bad against you, you lose your health, whatever it is, and, and you have this humiliation that occurs to you but we're talking about that's not really what God's waiting for. He uses that oftentimes to get our attention. And now Moses is ready. And God says, come on up here, and I want you to humble yourself before me. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Now Moses has a little argumentation with God and almost dies right there on the spot. Because God says, do this, he has all of his excuses, doesn't he? Oh, but, 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 but. And God says, no, I've chosen you. You're going to do this. And that's why the Bible describes Moses one of the humblest men on earth. And even we see later on, following the advice of his father-in-law of, of dealing with rebellion and or not dealing with it really, and waiting for God to really back him up on that, we see this this necessary choice to humble himself. But then what does God do there? Once Moses is in that condition, part of that 
trajectory that changes and now he is serving the kingdom of God is to say, I want to redirect your focus. I'm not saying that what you desired for the people, for my people back there decades earlier was wrong. It was your methodology that was wrong because you weren't seeking my face. Now it's going to be me and I'm going to redirect you. I'm going to tell you you're going to go back to that land. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to change your direction. You're out here wandering in the wilderness of, of, of <laughs> uh, in the round Sinai, and, and, which isn't the Sinai Peninsula, that's Saudi Arabia. And so we, we have him wandering around there. God says, I'm going to give you a laser-focused redirection. You're going to leave your father-in-law's sheep, and you're going to go back to Egypt, and here's what you're going to do. And that's the word here that is translated establish. I'm going to give you new direction. I'm going to give you a refocusing of what your purpose is. And I'm going to, and we're going to talk about the next word. I'm going to really drive you towards that. And we can, if we are true, humble servants of God, we will respond by obedience to that. We will pick that up. Was there opposition by his family? Yes. Uh, certainly, was there, was there uh, <laughs> did he have to give up his occupation? Yes, um, he had to walk away from that. He had to disrupt his whole life, didn't he? Once God gets a hold of you and says, I want you to go in this direction. He had become comfortable. He had a family, he had children, he had sheep, he, had, he, he was comfortable. And God says, no, now I'm ready to use you. After all of these years of being humbled, now I'm ready to use you. And what's the first evidence that I'm going to give you this direction. I'm going to tell you precisely, and I will lead you. You take that staff in your hand. Um, I'll give you your brother to help you, and, and you get back there, and I'm going to direct you. And, and God does that for Moses, the balance of his days. Tells Moses exactly what to do. Come on up here. I'll give you the direction for your life. And we see so much aimlessness in our people today that really just are wandering or they're self-serving. And as we spoke last week, I think a lot of that is because we've never gone through that process of that denigration, that humiliation till we are suffering for our faith. We're still going to endure. We're still going to speak like Job and say, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. I'm going to be faithful no matter what, no matter how much, and I'm not going to blame God for all this. I'm going to glorify God in all of this. And then when we come, start that trajectory out of that valley of the shadow of death. Does that sound familiar from a guy named David? You know, you think you're on this wonderful trajectory, right? Samuel the prophet takes you off of the field and anoints you and says you're going to be the next king of Israel. Oh, that's great. Everything's going to go great for me from now on. You've killed Goliath. Right? That's so you, your prowess on the battlefield is well known. Everything's going to go great for you, right? Nope. Doesn't, does it? Because you're not ready. And now you have this humiliation. You're being hunted by the one you used to serve. And you're going to have to go into the enemy's territory and pretend to be insane. And all 
all of this to survive. Again, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. David endured that. And even when Saul had died and David, that process of of gaining the kingdom was a lengthy one that was gradual as there were others that, that wanted to follow different leadership. And so he demonstrated his faithfulness to God, praising God that I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil for you are with me. What does he say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a tale before me in the presence of my enemies. You're going to give me this direction. And we're going to see that that redirection is that word and that concept that now I have a purposefulness. That I do not doubt, I do not waver, and I see my trajectory changing now, and that God is ready to use me, and it doesn't puff me up because I've gone through this, and I know what this entails And it has built my character to such a degree, standing fast in the midst of this humiliation and suffering, that now as I go here, I will just keep serving the Lord and serving the Lord. And when I fail in some way, I'll take personal responsibility for that. And I'll accept that and the punishment that goes along with it. And I will repent of it before my Lord and Savior. We see all those men doing that. We see in the words of Job when he's confronted with God and he, <laughs> and he says, well, what have I been doing? Why have I been having this debate with you because you're who you are and I'm not? And we see with David where he humbles himself and repents and, and for this sin and that sin and, and for the penalties that were incurred there, even for Moses who struck that rock twice when he wasn't supposed to and he accepted the penalty of that. So that trajectory isn't perfectly upward, but it is generally in that direction because the man of God, he will remember that character that has been steeled, has been been purified in the valley of death, in the valley of suffering and humiliation, but they they will continue on their purpose. They will now be driven in the direction that God has given them. They are no longer aimlessly wandering around in the wilderness. They might have been doing that for 40 years. But no longer we are driven, we are purposely, we are redirected. And this is what Peter desires for his readers, including you and I that we endure this suffering, that we stand fast, that we engage in this warfare, that we recognize that it may seem to the world on their standards that we aren't winning, but we recognize that the necessity upon us is that we remain faithful, that we bring glory to God, that we praise his name, that we have joy in the midst of suffering, that we endure and are steadfast. And then God's grace comes and will redirect us. And we will have that purposefulness and we'll understand his work in our life. And that may involve becoming a slave and then going into prison and then being forgotten by the people that you have helped so well for years in the case of Joseph. And yet God gave him a clear directive once he was out of that condition and had formulated that character he knew This is what I want you to do. This is your purpose. And he fulfilled that. 
even into his will and testimony for his corpse. Take my body back. This is the goal of all of this. You were not intended to come here to Egypt permanently, but only to thrive and then go back. What a redirection of life. That's the word establish. The word strengthen is a little more forthright for us. It is the idea of granting power to or empowering. And we are re-empowered. And we talk about when I first received Christ as my Savior, do I receive the Holy Spirit? Of course. And that is one of the evidences of, the Holy, of, the, of your salvation and, and your confession is that we are now baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we recognize that the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that is conditional, that it is conditional. Well, certainly the baptism of the Holy Spirit is conditional upon this trusting faith in our salvation, this salvation event of his presence. But his, pres- his power, his exercise of his power in our life is conditional. And you've heard me use the example so many times, I'm sure you're tired of it, and that is that it's like the, the mercury in your thermometer Uh, You don't ever add mercury to it. You don't ever take any out of it or you've ruined the thermometer. But yet it fills or, like this past week, didn't fill it much at all, uh, your tube. It expands or contracts based upon the environment that it's in. And similarly, the power of the Holy Spirit responds to the environment we place it in. When we are self-serving, when we are... uh, a part of this world, when we are trying to get along with um, everything in this world, trying to make the world happy instead of our God happy, we put this uh, Holy Spirit into an environment which he cannot exert his influence in us as he ought. And we basically boil him back down to his first job, which is to convict us. That's about all he's going to do for us, is touch us to awaken our conscience to our selfishness and and self-interest and to our love of the world, our carnality. And so we find that uh, when we are in these places of engaging in this warfare, we start to realize, "What what am I doing? Why am I muddying myself about in this environment? And we start to stand fast in our faith when we start to stand uh, against what is common that we stand against, and not just in the world, that I'm not going to look like the world, but as we shared last week, in church. Because there are going to be many, many within the church community that say, you're just too radical. We don't need to be that radical. And they will seek to diminish that spiritual fervor to be righteous in a godless world. Because they don't want to be drawn into that kind of living. They have grown content to tend sheep in the wilderness and wander. And they are unwilling to cross that Jordan River on dry ground and start engaging in battle. They want to just do what they've always done. So you will you'll encounter those. And when we 
begin to say, I'm going to be faithful to God's word. I'm going to be in there now. The Holy Spirit is, is going to strengthen or to re-empower us. We had that to begin with. We had that newness of the Spirit in us at our conversion where we wanted to please God and that became the central focus of our life. But then the cares of this world come in as the tears that, that start to sap away that interest and diminish that power because we have become more and more like the world and care more and more about their interests than the interests of God and the kingdom to come. And so once we readjust ourselves and focus ourselves, then suddenly the strengthening comes and we are re-empowered by the Spirit. This is not that I have to be re-saved. It is rather that I have now placed myself and desire to put myself on my knees before God and, and to say, I want to serve you faithfully and, and I want to be in your word and I want to be righteous in my walk, in my living. And, and I recognize that there is these areas of my life that are worldly and are sapping my energy for you. In wartime, there's a whole group in the old-time armies that were called sappers. That's what they were there for, just to take whatever they could from supply chains and from, um, we had sappers from the north that went down into the south during the Civil War and just tried to disrupt supply chains to try to burn crops. They just tried to diminish all of the resources for you to conduct war. They weren't going to fight you face to face. They're just going to reduce your resources. And that's really what the world does. They just sap us of strength by distraction more than assault. And this is one of the fiery darts of the evil one. It's not fired directly at you. It's, it's a glancing thing, but it saps from around you. And when we see this change of trajectory and we start moving ourselves into this condition of having suffered for a while and now God is ready to use us, we find, what does he do? He's going to empower us. And oh, we see it in all the human examples, don't we? The Old Testament. Suddenly these guys are charging in and yet talking to pharaohs. And, and twice, Moses and Joseph. Um, they're going in and they're, they're taking control of, in, of countries. And, and you've got Daniel going in and says, well, I'll tell you what your dream is and I'll interpret it. And then I'll faithfully serve this kingdom. And suddenly those that were tested and approved because they were faithful in the midst of that humiliation and suffering, God says, I'm going to empower you beyond your brother's. You will be strengthened to do what is necessary to do beyond even your capacities. And this is what the gifts of the Spirit are all about, that we serve God beyond our human capacities because they are part of God's grace that is gifted to us that we might administrate it for the benefit of his kingdom, his people. But again, we want to we don't want to go through the process to get to the point of being as usable to God as we possibly can because it involves humiliation and suffering. We want to be able to leap from this point to this point um, 
we want a divine aircraft to take us from one. We want the, the tram car to take us. We don't want to go through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't want to go there. Isn't there an easier way? And there is not. From the beginning of man to the end of man, there is no easy route to being usable before God. This is the mechanism consistently to bring us to humiliation that he might empower us, that when we feel weak, he is strong, the Bible says, that in my weaknesses he is glorified by re-empowering me. It is certain that these people, and Job, I mean, he had physical pain, uh, heartache, uh, lost everything. He had no willpower almost against his friends coming in and telling him that, just confess whatever sin it is you did that deserved this. And yet, look at the powerful wisdom that God gave him, granted him when he endured, when he declared simply and even weakly, in a weak voice, I'm convinced of, though he slay me, yet I'll serve him. And I, I don't know of any unrighteousness on my part that this has happened. I, don't, I, I can't find it. I've scoured my life. I cannot see why. And then on the other end of it, God enriched him, not just in those material things and familial things, but in wisdom. He was re-empowered. And this is what Peter declares as part of God's grace in this age, those that endure and stand fast, steadfast in the faith, in the faith that they will um, and humble themselves before him, endure that suffering with joy that we will be empowered by the Spirit. We will not get ourselves out of it by our own bootstraps because that, again, is self-serving. It is a statement of declaration of complete dependency upon God. I am dependent upon you. We read that in the Psalms where David pull, pours out his spirit before the Lord and says, I'm at a loss. I have enemies on my left. I have enemies on my right. I got enemies chasing me. I got enemies everywhere. Deliver me, Lord, because I have nothing but you. And that is the 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 character that God says, now I will respond because now you will bring me the glory because you'll recognize that power comes from me. This is why Israel was not supposed to have chariots. They weren't supposed to have the most modern weapons of warfare and the most effectual warfare because their dependency was upon God. You wait upon me and as low as you seem to be, I will come in and I will, I will kill those Assyrians myself. I will chase them off. And over and over again we see that when we grow to this point of dependency, God empowers us. How do you get to dependency? It's not by going on an upward trajectory all your life. You understand and begin to value dependency upon an individual or God when you are down. True? That's when you understand, I am dependent. I'm not looking forward to being dependent upon my family. That's why I really pray the Lord comes back before I get that old. I'm not looking forward to that. 
So maybe there's still that streak of pride in there that I don't want to be taken care of. I don't want to be wheeled around and, and fed and things like that. Uh, but understanding that level spiritually before God, that we must be dependent upon him, that's what the valley of the shadow of death is all about. That's why this suffering is there, that we engage in this warfare, not with expected victory after victory after victory after victory, but we're expecting a complete victory at the end. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to endure. I'm going to hold out. I'm going to defend this wall. And I have every confidence in defending this wall because that is the work of my Savior, and I am dependent upon him. It is not my work that I am trusting in. It is the power of Christ in me that leads to this confidence. And so we have this re-empowerment that awaits for us to declare our dependency, and that's why it comes after you have suffered a while. Now, we don't do this out of a position of ignorance. I want you to understand that. In the early years of the Christian walk, it's amazing to see God work in people, isn't it? Brand new believers. Why does God work so spectacularly sometimes in brand new Christians? And then, it's, and then it seems like these mature Christians just have it going. Boom, 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 boom. And, and why? Well, God has given us a taste of the power that's available to us. When we have expressed faith and that that faith needs to grow, we recognize that, that these people have to see that and their excitement is, is, is about this power, the spirit within them, and they want to share Christ with everybody. And then we, but the cares of this world, they come in, don't they? that daily grind starts to sap us of that energy and power that we experienced in the beginning, but we know that it was there. This is what John talks to, to the Ephesian church about in Revelation. You've forgotten your first love. Do you remember that passion that you had when you first accepted Christ? That is such a critical part of the Christian walk because when we come on the other side of the valley and we're going up, we're going higher than that place and we're having a deeper dependency upon God and we're having an extraordinary uh, experience with his power and evidence of it in our lives that is enduring. This initial Thing is often exciting, but not long-lasting. Nor does it need to be. We don't sit there and judge them, say, oh, you lost your salvation because now you're going into this valley of suffering. Uh, no, the problem is we haven't taught suffering well enough and we haven't prepared these new believers for that valley. And when they get down there, they get discouraged and despondent and they start to turn against God instead of endure it Rejoice in it and recognize that God is preparing you for exaltation. He is training you for what's coming. And we see this in athletics quite a bit. The coach walks out there. He sees this athlete that shows uh, great talent and he can see it, but it's raw, isn't it? And so you're out there running against your 
friends in the neighborhood and you obliterate them. But he has something much greater in mind than you beating your neighborhood kids. He wants you to beat world-class sprinters or marathoners uh, or milers. He wants you to beat them. So what does he do? He takes you. Does he say, you're such a great runner, just keep doing what you're doing? No, he breaks you down to reteach you the very fundamentals and to train you properly so that you can now compete not against neighborhood children, but against world-class athletes on an international venue. And boy, does it hurt. It hurts, doesn't it? To be a little faster than everyone in the neighborhood is one thing. And then you have to go through all that pain and suffering and training and, and, and then to come out on the other end just that much better. This is what God has in store for us. He wants us empowered on another whole level. It is the same power that we see at work in these brand new believers that they haven't learned how to wield and how to, how to uh, give glory to God in, and yet they have it. It's there. You can see it, and that's exciting, and we all want to gravitate towards that. But what we should be doing is training them and, and recognizing that this is not going to be a sustained experience by them. They are going to have a valley coming into their life sooner for some and later for others. What we want to see is them come out of that with this understanding and this access to the power of the Spirit in their life that is enduring, that is deep running. And it might not be as flashy and exciting, but it is contenting. That depth of contentment that God is at work in my life. And there's evidence there. And there's joy there. Can that be exciting? It should be. You know, Moses had this great passion that moved him to this action and... and, and wasn't very wise, wasn't very righteous, but he had the right passion, didn't he? He wanted to deliver God's people from suffering. But now look when he shows up as, an, as what, 80 years old? With a staff. Did he still have that passion? Oh, yes. But he wasn't going to attack anyone. I'm going to let God do it. I'm going to use the power of God. You see, the new believer is experiencing the power of God in him, and that's exciting. The mature one who has come out of the valley is expressing the power of God for others. That's his possession. We are strengthened. And so that is the offer, the grace of God, that if we have endure that suffering for a while, we will be refitted, We'll be redirected. We'll be re-empowered. These are not things for the future. These, in terms of eternity, we're talking about on this earth that you might serve the kingdom of God. We're going to be talking about eternity next week, it looks like. We have one more word. And again, these seem in English to be all kind of very similar, but we have another word, and that is, and settle you is what God promises. After you have suffered a little while, that God will settle you. And this sounds like, well, that you've been tossed to and fro and now you are, are, are 
settled down and smooth, um, and that's really um, not entailed in, in this word very much. Um, in fact, this is uh, literally to stand you back up. That's literally what the Greek word entails. I'm going to stand you back. It's going to be reactivated. It said, I'm going to, uh, it, it's a word used that, that of when you take something that's fallen down and you, you put it, that's supposed to be erect and you put it back up. That's what the word literally means, to stand you back up. That now I am going to, and there, there's a sense of being, of being planted, of a permanency, of being put back on a foundation and, 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 and sat there and, and with, a, with a certain amount of, the concept of being settled is that now you are back into that place and, and on a firm foundation. But overwhelmingly, the word talks about a being stood back up being erected after having been uh, collapsed that you have now. And, and this is so precious, isn't it? That God's statement is, I'm going to stand you back up. From the world's perspective, you've been knocked down and knocked down and knocked down and knocked down, and that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to knock you down and knock you down. The question is, can we get back up? And we start to feel like there's no getting back up because every time I try to get up on my knees, I get knocked down again. I get knocked down again. And it's just not time yet. We endure that. We praise God for that. We, we stay steadfast in that. We stay determined that God is our God and I will serve him faithfully. And if he wants me to serve him on my belly, I will do that on my belly as long as it is required of me with a knowledge that after I have suffered for a little while, he's going to, Lift me up and reactivate me in service and he is going to put me back in this position. Literally, back on your feet spiritually. We're not talking about physically. By the way, the problem with all these people against the militant songs in our hymn book is because they don't understand they're spiritual. They confuse the spiritual with the physical just like the Pharisees of old. Couldn't understand when Jesus says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. They says, we have to become cannibals? They didn't understand it as spiritual truth, not physical truth. Only we understand that we are spiritually put back on our feet. That we are reactivated now. We are put back up to, we are re, we're not only refitted and, and, and brought in, not only are we redirected and re-empowered, but we're reactivated. We're, we're putting back into, into action. It's taking something that has taken its hits and taken its hits and taken its hits and now it seems like it's worthless and now we're going to set it back up and, and put it into, back into action to reactivate it. Many of our naval vessels were are often decommissioned. They're still floatable, but they're decommissioned over time. Um, at the beginning of World War II, you know, how, especially after Pearl Harbor, how many decommissioned ships were stood back up? We're going to put them back into service. Why? Well, we need them. <laughs> and it's that whole idea. We're putting back into action. It has been 
you, you, it seems like you're knocked down and you're done, that God seems not to be interested in using you, and then all of a sudden he reaches down and it says it's time. I'm going to put you back up. The biblical, the, the, the Greek New Testament word that we use uh, regarding the churches to edify, that is to build up. This is a different word. This is to set up, to set you back up. And the, the idea is this is something that has fallen, that has collapsed, and now I'm going to put you back where you belong. And it is certainly entailed that whole idea of reactivation, that you are now put back into service. Not on your belly anymore, but on your feet. But that time of being knocked down was so important so that you don't take glory for yourself when you're set on the, back up on that pedestal of service. That it's not you doing it, and you know it's not you doing it. You give glory to the, to the God of heaven and earth who has taken you out of the valley, who has lifted you off of your belly and put you on your feet in this pedestal of serving him. Oh, that every Christian would have that experience. But we don't want to spend the time on our bellies. We don't want to be knocked down. We don't want to endure that, that crushingness of the world's opposition and sometimes within their own Christian community's opposition to us. We don't want to endure that, yet that is the measure of faith. And that is the building of faith. We often hear people say, well, don't pray for patience, because if you pray for God to give you patience, what's going to happen? Tribulation. Well, if you want to have great faith, you know what else you're going to have? Great opposition. You ready to do some really hard things for God that, from your belly, from your knees, deep in the valley? This is where your faith is measured. Are you going to persist in following after Christ? And that doesn't mean that once you get out of that valley, there aren't others along the way, because there certainly are, because Paul obviously when he got reactivated into the ministry after 12 years in Tarsus, he, and he gets stood back up, and he gets re-empowered, and now you see him, boy, he's, he's going to be stoned. He's, he's um, left for dead. He's, he's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to be beaten and whipped. He's going to be in prison, all those things. But the attitude is something else, isn't it? It's like, ah, that's not so much. Where does that come from? It comes from 12 years in the valley where it seems like you weren't useful to anybody in the kingdom of God for anything. And then when he was stood back up, he's in, his, in the place where God would use him. It was all to God's glory. And now standing fast is going to be a simple task because I've endured that. I may fail here and there, but I've endured that. I will never deny my Lord. So we have this expectation and instead of looking at it with dread as so many do and trying to avoid it, that's what gets me is how many of us try to avoid persecution. We try to avoid the war. Do you understand what that's called? That's called cowardice. Spiritual cowardice. I don't want to 
have my Christian faith cost me anything. I don't want to be in this valley. Brethren, if you are not in the valley, you cannot be exalted by God to greater things. Christ humbled himself, became a servant, even to the point of death, and God has highly exalted him. That's your example. We embrace it. We should teach it and train. Even new believers say, you should expect this. And, and some believers know it when they accept Christ because they know their family and their culture. When a Muslim accepts Christ as his Savior, he knows, or she, she knows what's coming. The immediate cost. And the intensity of that cost. God will highly exalt them if they endure. After you have endured suffering for a little while, here's what you can expect. You'll be refitted. Rejoined into the ministry. You'll be redirected and have purpose in life. You'll have re-empowerment by the Spirit on a degree that you haven't known in the past. And you'll be reactivated, stood back up to his service. These things we should look forward to. But the training of our faith, the training of our character, the training of our will is necessary to this end. And that training can happen at the hands of the world, often happens within the context of our churches, most of Christ's opposition was not from the world. It was from religious people. We'll want to drag you from your faithful walk with Christ. Brethren, serve the Lord in the valley. Serve him at the beginning of your life, of your Christian life, and you will serve him gloriously when you come out of that valley into his exalted place where he stands you up. He says, here he is. What does it require of you to endure? Yes. To be steadfast in the faith? Yes. But we also remember that one of the most fundamental tools, one of the most fundamental things that we are learning in the valley to help us handle the exaltation is humility. Because remember where this all started. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That was five verses earlier. I know that was a lot of weeks ago we studied that. But it was just a few verses earlier in 1 Peter 5. This is the connection. After you have endured, you'll be exalted. But to prevent you from a proudful position when you are refitted, re-empowered, redirected, and reactivated, you've learned humility. That it all goes to Christ and none for you. To avoid it, don't pray for patience, don't pray for faith, and don't pray for humility. 
but then recognize that God won't use you. And that has been the condition of many. The multitudes who were even called by his name that were not used by God because they did not want to endure the valley of suffering and humiliation, of shame and injury. And it says God resists them, but the grace is for the humble. And that grace is described with these four words. And certainly then there will be a final reward, which we can't get to today because I've gone really late already. But I did get through three words. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your truth before us. And we pray that you might find us serving you wherever we are in the spectrum of Christian experience, whether we be new believers that are enjoying that, that we might be braced and prepared and taught and ready to receive that warfare and the resulting humiliation and suffering, whether we are already in that time, that we might remain faithful and true, trusting in you, seeking your truth, following your word, or whether we are on the other side of that valley, being pulled out of it to be refitted, to be reactivated, to be re-empowered and redirected. Lord, we thank you. Help us to serve you faithfully as a church, knowing that within our experience here that we may all be at different points, but Lord, we want to serve you. And with some fearfulness, we ask that you do your work in us, that we might be a greater asset to your kingdom. that we might be a people humbled before you and seeking to walk in your truth to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.